From east to west and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel. Experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to Episode 7 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, and I'm joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. Hey. Craig, how are you today? I'm I'm doing better than it sounds like you're doing, unfortunately. I, I know. It sounds like I'm going through puberty, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, not that bad. But <laughs> so, definitely not great at the same time. I know. After um, after I joined you out there in Orlando, um, I flew back home and my wife and I then drove down to um, to San Diego to pick up our granddaughter. And we spent the weekend at Disneyland. And it was, uh, you know, because we wanted to say farewell to Rivers of America exactly. as we know it. And um, our granddaughter spent an amazing amount of time in a Big Thunder Ranch petting area, saying goodbye to the goats and all that. <laughs> and um, we ate at Big Thunder Ranch barbecue for the last time. And we hung out with Mary Jo from the Disneyland podcast yeah. for a while and saw Tom and his family. It was extraordinarily cold there oh, really? and i think i caught i caught something that has settled in my throat well i mean at the same time too you've been uh just whirlwind traveling and the weather wasn't great while you were out here either so uh kind of kind of understandable yeah yeah so hopefully it won't um it won't affect people's enjoyment of the show so I don't know. Anyways. It adds a <laughs> brand new uh, element to your voice. It's a little uh, deeper. Sounds like you've been uh, smoking a lot like yes. Walt. It's, it's my Lauren Bacall voice. <laughs> or that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, um, I heard really good things about last week's show that folks appreciated um, hearing about Roy Disney, sort of the unsung you know, brother in many ways. Oh yeah, no. To um, to you know the the wonderful partnership that he and Walt had in creating the Disney Empire. Um, I have a couple of corrections though to the previous episode. Um, I think when I was re-listening to it, um, I think I mentioned that Roy was the quick-tempered brother, and it was actually Walt. You probably picked it up as I you know talk through some of the you know scenarios there and experiences they had but but Walt could be very quick tempered and sort of hang on to things just a bit and stew over them and you know that was that was a quality though that the stewing on things that sort and chewing on them for a while that you know it has a it has that positive effect because that's how he was with his stories i mean he would think about them until he got it right and that's how he was with the animation he would just go over it and over it and have the animators work on it until it was just right but you know the flip side is sometimes he would dwell on things and allow them to maybe build up a little but as always though he and Roy always reconciled and I think that's the important thing to bring to you know take out of that that their love 
never diminish their love for each other. Also, when we talked about how the podcast was an event podcast, in my excitement and enthusiasm, I added an extra month into it. So Connecting with Walt comes to you in January, April, July, and October. I think I threw uh, December in there as well. I think because we were just so busy working on it in December. Yeah. And with Dispalooza and all that. So I think people thought, oh my gosh, we're getting a Christmas gift. Okay. Next month, but um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not that lucky. <clears throat> yeah, no, no, no. So, what have you been up to, Craig? Uh, just uh, plugging away. So, um, for all the uh, dissers out there who haven't um, been paying attention lately, maybe just listening to the podcast right now, uh, it's a perfect time to go and visit uh, the actual Diz WDWinfo.com because. Uh, we've been working hard on a daily news update that goes out every day called the Diz Daily Fix. And that's been taking up most of my time right now, as well as uh, hanging out in the theme parks a little, uh, just in a little more of a relaxed way than normal. Whenever I have to go in uh, all crazy with a camera strapped to me and just constantly in work mode. So, yeah, I've been, I've had a real, uh, real interesting couple weeks here, but. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm. Well, I'll sleep whenever I'm dead. <laughs> well, just the the way the um, the Diz Network has grown is amazing because you know you're the producer for all the shows. If people don't know that, and uh, you know, connecting with Walt was new in October, and then you had all the other shows, you know, and then and then to do that were already up and running, but then. We have John and Kevin's new show, the Dreams yeah. Unlimited podcast, which I'm really enjoying, and you produce that, and the Daily Fix, which I think is really a lot of fun, really terrific. And um, not only do I like watching it, but I like all the links and things that are in there because I used to get that information by going to four or five or six different websites. Exactly, and uh, one of the the big changes with it, uh, if people haven't noticed, is that. We are, um, in a way, we're we're reaching out to a lot of the other the other fan sites in our mm-hmm. Disney community, and uh, whenever they have good information out there, we don't we don't want people to just necessarily uh, stay away because they're loyal to one site. If they have better, if they have good or better information out there, then uh, we we really want people to just have a place where they can go where they know that they're going to be redirected to where the great information is out there in regards to Disney. So it, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully there's some more uh, unique things coming along with it in the future as uh, we get our our bearings with all of it. Yeah, and there's a lot of more daily in-park um, reports and photos and things I've noticed as well. Yeah, and uh, with that, I, I kind of urge anyone out there who isn't following all of our uh, Diz team on social media to definitely uh, go ahead and do that especially with uh with twitter um you know we're, we're in the parks at, at a minimum of five days of the week chain depending on who it is and uh you know a lot of us still go on saturdays and sundays now on our own free time just having fun um so there's it's pretty much getting to the point where there's going to be uh, someone from our team in the parks every day of the week uh just waiting to uh to update everyone else on 
what's happening and then meet anyone who happens to be uh, walking around so definitely follow us and uh, keep an eye out for us because you never know when you're going to find us definitely but right now you found us on connecting with walt so let's jump right in here um in episode six last time craig and i discussed royo disney and walt disney's personal and business relationship and how together they built an entertainment empire and in today's episode titled pursuing the dream without the dreamer we're going to examine how walt disney's passing in december 1966 impacted the creative course of the entire disney world project Uh, and if you've been listening to my series Disneyland, 60 Years of Disneyland ad uh, on the Disneyland show, this is again a companion piece to it. We're not going to dwell too much here on what took place in December 1966, but I am going to give you another side to it. But to get a full picture of the impact Walt's passing had on on the Disney company, you'll want to listen to the Disneyland show as well yep. in those episodes. Um, so right now, it's December 15th, 1966, and Walt Disney's great vitality is gone. As Walt and Roy's families console each other at St. Joseph's Hospital, across the street, the Walt Disney Studio is in disarray. Staggered by the loss of the company's guiding force, the executives below Walt and Roy are unsure how to proceed. I don't even want to. Sorry, I don't. I don't want to disrupt the story before we get too far in there. But um, you know, just just with this first uh, the first part alone, one of the uh, amazing things I talked about a little bit about my honeymoon and getting to go on the backstage magic trip in the last episode. But one of the most impactful moments of it was that the day that we were on the studios was actually uh, December 15th. So no one really kind of picked up on it right away. And, you know, we're all just having fun exploring the studio, uh, as you do on that tour. And then the, whenever we were at wrapping up, that's whenever we thought about it. Like, And they, they tell you that, yeah, that's the hospital right across the street that Walt died at. And then we all just put it together like, oh my gosh this you know it's it's the anniversary of walt's death day and we're at the walt disney studios it was it was one of those moments that will stay with me for the longest time if not forever yeah because when you think back that you know i mean when you were looking at saint joseph's from the studio one of those windows was walt's room yeah. Because Walt was in a room that looked out over the studio, and whilst he was in the hospital for those final couple of weeks, mm. Roy had all the lights at the studio turned on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so that Walt could always see the studio. Yeah, it gives me chills just thinking about it again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that, would be, that would be a very moving experience, I think, to be there. Yeah. On, on the anniversary of that day. It was, yeah. So Card Walker summoned Marty Scalar from WED over to his office. Up until now, Marty Scalar had been responsible for writing annual reports, you know, Walt's speeches, and other important documents and scripts. Walt's dead, said Walt, Walter to Scalar. 
Walker then proceeded to tell Sklar that no preparations had been made for Walt's passing, even though Walker and Don Tatum had known Walt was dying. Roy refused to talk to anyone that morning, so Sklar was given one hour to go into the next office and write a press release summarizing Walt Disney's life and career. And I've heard Marty talk about this uh, at the Walt Disney Family Museum and how he was completely blown away that they were, compl- they were totally unprepared for this. Yeah. That nothing had been written about Walt and his life and his accomplishments and that he was given an hour to summarize all of it. Yeah, and no, it's... I mean, granted, they didn't want to think on the the downside that, yeah, it was going to happen one day, but I I feel like Walt was enough of a realist to know that it was something that needed to be in place just in case something ever happened. I, Walt didn't Walt didn't like to think about that and 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 as we're going to talk about in a few moments, ev- he had taken on a, a bigger than life persona with not only with the studio and and the folks at Disneyland but even within his own family, it never occurred to anybody that Walt would ever die. Hmm. It just it, they just always felt that Walt would continue on. And there was no thought given to what would happen after he passed away. What would happen to the studio? What would happen to Disneyland? What would happen to the Florida project? There was no thought at all given to any of that. And there, were no, there was no succession preparations, no nothing. Yeah, and now they probably have mm-hmm. uh, at least three or four people in line that they know that they could replace Bob Iger if he was to go tomorrow. Oh, absolutely. And... And there's nobody like Walt who he was the one decision maker. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Bob Iger doesn't doesn't oh, fill that role. Oh, no. He, he's uh, essentially Jesus. <laughs> Walt or, um, or Bob Iger? <laughs> A little bit of both, yeah. <laughs> so, so the news of Walt's death was released to the public, and the cause was announced as acute circulatory collapse. Cancer was not mentioned in the press release, nor was any information about the funeral, except that it was private, family only. The lack of information about the funeral contributed to many fantasies and urban myths, the most well-known being that Walt Disney had been preserved by cryonics for resurrection at a later date. Um, Walt's body being cremated just added fuel to the speculation. Oh, Diane Disney a few years ago said that the family, this was very hurtful and painful to the family to hear these stories that, that Walt had somehow been frozen um, because it, it just opened old wounds and memories. And she finally figured out that the rumor was traced to one of the um, London tabloids that okay. they had first speculated on it and it, it and it just went you know like wildfire yep. around the world well it's sad to say but i mean it's a good thing then that she's no longer alive to uh be around for whenever they release the stupid further adventures of walt's frozen head movie that they secretly filmed inside uh, the theme parks 
Okay, what is this now? <laughs> oh, you don't know about this. Uh, I don't think so, no. Okay, here's breaking news, gang. This, uh, well, this came out of, um, God, it was sometime last year. I want to say maybe October or November, uh, somewhere around that, uh, maybe even December. But uh, we reported on the Diz Unplugged podcast that another group of people ended up making a movie in secret at our magic kingdom and yeah it's it's uh just i mean a fan film that they're trying to make as big as possible but it's all around the urban legend of uh walt disney's frozen head being defrosted apparently so there there's a book i remember i do remember now you're talking about it on the Disney World show, but I didn't remember the title. There's also a book out there, I think it might be a self-published book, I'm not sure, called Waking Walt. Okay, yeah, Um, I've heard of that. Yeah, the person needed an editor um, and spell check, but I read it out of morbid curiosity, and uh, and it's the whole thing that Walt was indeed um, preserved, and because of... um, the, you know, the Disney company is on the verge of collapse. Yeah. And whoever is running it is, in order to save it, is about to sell off parts. And so the original, there was a core group of people that were responsible for so, o- overseeing the maintenance of Walt. And it had been handed, for some of them it passed away, it had been handed on to their children this task and the decision was made that they needed to um to bring walt back now because the company was at a crisis and only he could bring it bring it to them but it's and then there's this all this political and corporate intrigue because as people realize what has happened and we're not even talk about how ridiculously easy it was (laughs) to bring him back yeah um there, there are people inside the company that know he's back, but f- for their own position, want to dispose of him before it's made public. And and yes, Walt sees what the current Epcot is like. Yeah, and you and you do get to see um, you you get his reaction. Yeah, and so um, so it's it's um, I, I hate to promote this book, but um. It's it's a goofy, mindless read. <clears throat> if you can get over the hmm. poor writing and all that. Nice. So, anyway. So, anyway, so um, Walt Disney's funeral was austere as he wanted it. He loathed the spectacles of Hollywood celebrity funerals. In attendance were Lillian and their daughters, Diane and Sharon, and their husbands. Roy and Edna, their son, Roy Edward, and his wife, Patty. And the only flowers were a wreath sent by Roy Edward and Patty. The funeral only deepened Roy's grief over his brother's death. When I go, don't do that to me, Roy told his son later that day. His family and those who dealt closely with Roy believe that he was never the same after Walt's death. It had never, like we were saying, it had never occurred to Roy that Walt would ever die, and certainly not before himself. Roy Edward later said, I think the whole family was like that. Walt had become a kind of mythical being, even then to a lot of people, and especially to his own family. 
it was a sense of he'll be around forever. So Roy Disney returned to his responsibilities as the surviving co-founder of Walt Disney Productions. Um, he issued an open statement to the public, the stockholders, and the more than 4,000 Disney employees, assuring them that we will continue to operate Walt Disney's company in the way that he has established and guided it. He went on to say that Walt had gathered a team of people who understood his way of communicating with the public through entertainment. Walt's ways were always unique, and he built a unique organization. Roy's next task was to earn the support of Walt's boys, those who owed their allegiance to Walt, and for whom Roy was only a casual figure. Roy was unfamiliar with Wed, mainly because Walt didn't want anyone, including his older brother, interfering with his future projects. So Marty Sklar recalled, when Walt died, Roy had been in the Wed building only once, to my knowledge. And Card Walker and Don Tatum, not at all. This was Walt's place. I'll take care of it. You guys stay out of it. I'll tell you what I want what I want you to know about what we're doing was Walt's attitude. A week after Walt's passing, Roy met with the senior executives, including Card Walker and Don Tatum, the leadership from WED, department heads, and creative people in a projection room at the studio. Roy's voice was hoarse, and he, like mine, and he <laughs> choked up occasionally when he spoke of Walt, but said confidently that the company would continue on the same course Walt had charted. Of the Florida project, Roy said, we're going to finish this park and we're going to do it just the way Walt wanted it. Don't you ever forget it. I want every one of you to do just exactly what you were doing, what you were going to do when Walt was alive. Roy went to Disneyland and met with the supervisors and department heads to tell them nothing would change in the operation of the park and Walt's plans for new attractions and expansion would be carried out. Until new leadership arose, the company would be run by a committee consisting of Bill Anderson, who is the production chief, producers Bill Walsh, Winston Hibbler, Harry Teitel, and Jim Algar, Card Walker, who's the marketing chief, Roy Edward Disney, who'd be the television producer, and Walt's son-in-law, Ron Miller, who'd be the producer. Within weeks of Walt's passing, Walt Disney Productions attorney, Paul Hellowell, was in Orlando to meet with the area's legislative delegates. Now, his goal was to assure them that the company remained committed to the Florida project and that Roy Disney had personally assured them that the project was on track. Rather than cancel or delay the project, Disney actively worked on the package of legislative bills needed to establish the project. And much of the drafting work for the legislation was given to Helmut Firth, who was one of Disney's outside attorneys at the Donovan Law Firm in Florida. So besides writing the bills, Disney also needed to have sponsors for the legislation. 
So Disney selected the well-respected state senator Bob Elrod to shepherd the bill package through the legislature. So with the 1967 legislative session um, was scheduled to begin in April, the um, company needed to complete discussions with local delegates and to secure their support quickly. So to avoid the political posturing that was typical in public meetings with Disney, a private meeting with local legislative delegates was scheduled at the Villanova Restaurant in Winter Park, Florida. So I wonder if that restaurant is still around. Uh, actually, to be honest, I literally just searched it to see if it was. And because I had never heard of it until right now. Um, I don't believe it. OK, it's been turned down for many years and it's now a CVS drugstore. Oh, OK. Fantastic. <laughs> it's, sort of, it's sort of like the Hyperion Studios is the Gelson's. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> well, you know, you can all go to that CVS and, Just, I don't know, maybe the, maybe the vitamin aisle was where they sat and did this. Yeah, you know, that's a good excuse to get people into that CVS. We don't have a sponsorship <laughs> with them, by the way. No, we don't. <laughs> so you don't have to buy anything exactly. from there. Just stay in there. <laughs> so anyway... Um, so, unfortunately, Disney's plans are once again shattered when the federal courts again overturned Florida's reapportionment results. So, as a result, Disney would once again have to persuade legislators, some of whom may not be in office when it came time to vote on the company's package of bills. In spite of this, Disney moved ahead with the local delegation meeting. So on February 2nd, 1967, Paul Hallowell and Roy Hawkins, who was Disney's real estate advisor, joined Roy Disney and several Disney officials at yet another invitation-only meeting in Winter Park, Florida. So politicians and business leaders throughout Florida were also invited. So at this meeting, Walt's final production, the Epcot film, describing the Florida project was first viewed outside the company. So Disney reserved Orlando's largest movie complex, the Wometco Park Theaters in Winter Park, for the elaborate event that included a summary of the proposed legislation. And I think I Googled this, and I think that theater is still there. Um, from what I believe, it is... I, I think it was still there, but it's still there, but it's no longer operating as a movie theater. I think that closed a, some years back. Oh, okay. Because so. the event was in the Park West Theater, and it featured a number of speakers and Walt's Epcot film explaining the project in greater detail. So participants then moved next door to the Park East Theater for a press conference describing the plans. Yeah. So there were two versions of the Epcot film titled Epcot 66 that were prepared for this event. So one version focused on government officials and the other on corporations on potential participation in the project. And I think if you get that Imagineering Walt Disney World 
DVD, yes, if it's still yeah. in the parks. It is. They have different versions of the film huh. on that, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I, so, I actually um, bought it years, years back, or my sister gave it to me as a present, and I don't think I've ever actually taken it out of the, uh, the, the package. Yeah, because I know, um, I know, because I watched it once when I was flying out to Disney World, Walt Disney World, and um, th- the version they had on there is not the full version. Okay. They, they, they clearly had the one that was for the um, corporate sponsors on there. Hmm. I'll have to dig that out of the uh, the dust trap that it's probably sitting in. Yeah. So, anyway, so um, the cost of the Flor- Florida project was now projected to be $600 million. So this meeting was the first Disney-held event connected to the Disney project in over a year, and it was the first since Walt Disney had passed away. So the the gathering quickly took on a a circus-like atmosphere with all the pomp of a Hollywood film premiere. So Florida's very colorful Governor Kirk, who had been in office only a short time, made the entrance as grand as any head of state. So after he had a private lunch with Roy Disney and several Disney officials at the rooftop restaurant of Orlando's Langford Hotel, the governor and Roy Disney drove to Winter Park in a nine-passenger Lincoln Continental limousine that was originally built for Joseph Kennedy, who was the father of President John F. Kennedy. And it was adorned with flags on the front, similar to a presidential vehicle. And it was led by a siren-flashing state police escort. So a crowd of reporters and photographers greeted the limousine. So Florida State Senate President Verl Pope had forgotten to bring his invitation to the event. So the security personnel did not recognize the senator, and they wouldn't admit him. So finally, State Senator Beth Johnson, who had brought her invitation, was able to confirm Senator Pope's identity, so he was allowed to enter. So the press became very interested in a mystery woman who went up to Roy Disney, who was seated and was waiting for the film to begin, and she kissed him on the cheek. The press immediately began asking, who is this woman? especially because this unknown woman had frequently been at Governor Kirk's side during his recent campaign for governor. In fact, she later married the governor hmm. and became, she became Florida's first lady. The actual story of the kiss was even less tantalizing than the press had hoped for. Dorothy Austin worked for a Daytona Beach newspaper, and she was Roy Disney's cousin. This didn't stop the press from asking her to again kiss Roy Disney for their camera. And this was a request for which Miss Austin was happy to cooperate. Hmm. And I would imagine it embarrassed Roy Disney. Oh, I have to imagine, yeah. Yeah, because he was, since he was a very private, unassuming man. Yeah, well, the the price of being a uh, celebrity. Really? Really? So all these activities added to the growing excitement surrounding this event. So Orlando's economic development officials missed no opportunity to use the Florida Project and this event to raise Central Florida's national profile. So when the meeting finally began, it was all business. 
Pa Hallowell opened the meeting with a greeting for the legislators and special guests. He then introduced General Joe Potter, who introduced a 25-minute film describing Disney's plans for the Florida Project. You can imagine everyone was riveted as they listened to Walt Disney outlining his vision for his city of tomorrow. It was emotional and inspiring to see Walt on film just two months after his passing, talking so enthusiastically about his greatest and his most ambitious project. After the Epcot film concluded, Roy Disney spoke and went into more detail about Disney's commitment to the project, and he also provided more on Epcot, the city of tomorrow, saying the master vision for the project included the world's first glass-domed city, and plans called for the city to be air-conditioned with 50 acres under the glass dome. A 30-story mixed-use hotel would rise dramatically through the roof of the dome. And no construction date was announced for the Epcot portion of the project. But Roy Disney suggested the city would cost about $75 million and could take over 25 years to complete. And portions of this meeting are on that Imagineering um, Walt Disney World DVD. Okay, now I really have to go back and find where I put this thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting. So next, Don Tatum took the stage and provided details on the company's legislative package it would soon introduce. And then Governor Kirk closed the meeting with a promise that Florida would provide strong support for this groundbreaking effort. And the governor also shared the findings of the latest study by Buzz Price's company, ERA, that focused on the expected revenue and attendance the Disney World project would generate for the region and state. Most significantly, in the first 10 years, the project would generate 50,000 new jobs and over $6.5 billion in economic impact for the state. Wow. I can only imagine, you know, what that really did become. You know, as, in ten years. No, I mean, yeah, it's, I, yeah, that, that's hard to imagine. Uh, yeah. Back then, even throwing around the term six point five, but yeah, I wonder what it, what it actually ended up being. Because it, every everything they projected pretty much ended up being very conservative. Okay. Especially yep. in the cost. Yeah. So. After the conclusion of the meeting, the Disney company launched a statewide publicity effort. And and Roy Disney and Governor Kirk immediately flew to Jacksonville, Florida, where they taped a television special that was broadcast throughout the state that evening, along with the Epcot film, to explain how the Florida project would benefit all Floridians. So the Florida event was a big success for Disney. And as a result of the presentation, they received statements of support from key legislators. Seven state senators and six state representatives found portions of their districts within Disney's 43 square miles of property. About 8% of the entire Florida legislature counted some piece of Disney's land inside their district, which is really amazing when you think about it. 
So gaining the support of these legislators meant Disney's legislative package would be politically supported when it was introduced. And as with anything political, there was an awkward PR moment. You may remember Craig and I talking about former Florida Governor Burns in previous episodes, and he was a major supporter of the Florida Project, but he was defeated in a 1966 Democratic primary. And Governor Burns had been asking Disney to hire him as a company representative in matters related to Florida's government regulations. And he even opened an office in Orlando for his consulting activities. Well, in January 1967, Burns stated during a newspaper interview he would be retained by Disney as a business and government consultant. So reporters at the February Winter Park presentation asked Dom Tatum about Disney hiring Burns as a consultant. Well, Tatum did express the company's appreciation for all the assistance Burns had provided as governor, but denied Disney had hired him. Burns had not even been invited to the February presentation. Later, Governor Burns did attempt to qualify his claim. But although Disney did not hire Governor Burns, the company later hired his son, William Burns, to head Disney's parking and transportation at the resort. Oh, that works. So, you know, they still still kept it in the family. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. So during their February visit to Orlando, key Disney officials, including Roy Disney, Card Walker, Don Tatum, and Joe Potter, took time to tour the project property. So surveying the property by both land and boat, they saw much more clearly now that the effort to turn a swamp into a world-class theme park resort, not to mention a city of the future, would be a massive undertaking. And if they were to open the resort by 1971, they would have to quicken the pace of their development efforts. So the company increased its lobbying efforts and later in the week after the February presentation, Hellowell returned to the Park West Theater to attend a public hearing with the legislative delegates from Osceola and Orange Counties. And Helmut Firth, the New York, New York lawyer who counseled Disney on the project and drafted a significant portion of the legislation, also attended. And the attorneys discussed many issues, including the scope of the proposed new cities and their powers. And the legislators wanted to know how these new cities would interact with the existing county governments. And Hellowell assured them that Disney was not trying to set up a private kingdom where no one can vote. Hellowell assured them that Disney was, was um, had not yet decided on who would be allowed to live in these cities. He also explained the company was not trying to avoid governance by the counties through the use of its new municipalities and improvement district. This same issue came up a month later in March 1967 when Disney's attorney Bob Foster and local attorney Phil Smith attended a Saturday afternoon hearing with the county delegates on the proposed legislation. And the legislators asked if Disney's Municipal and Improvement District would be exempt from county and state regulations and county taxes. 
and Foster assured them Disney would not use legislation to obtain a unique tax advantage. By April 1967, the company had presented its plans to a wide variety of political, economic, and elected officials who would actually be in the state legislature was not known until after the March 1967 special election. Two of the project's biggest supporters, Senators Erlo Bronson and Beth Johnson, had decided not to seek re-election under the new legislative districts. The legislation seemed destined for success. However, some political hurdles remained. Florida had a Republican governor and a Democrat-controlled executive cabinet. This presented the possibility of unanticipated issues. Since taking office, Governor Kirk had become known as someone who was not afraid to engage in tough politics. He started an aggressive effort to root out corruption and crime in Florida, which was causing stress amongst the status quo. He also had no problem with taking political pot shots at opposition. As an example, Kirk was on a trip to California to meet with Disney executives. Kirk was given a tour of new Disney technology, which included seeing an audio animatronic ape. Kirk greeted the ape with a handshake and said, Verl Pope, I believe, referring to the Florida Democratic state president. Hmm. So much for us thinking that, you know, politics, you know, they they were so much more gentlemanly in the old days. Very mature. (laughs) (laughs) So on April 17th, 1967, Disney's massive legislative package of 481 pages, which is available online if you care to read it, was officially introduced in both the Florida House and and Senate, and the legislative leaders showed the Epcot film in both chambers. Hellowell briefly addressed the joint session to explain why these unique governing structures were needed. He stated they were simply a logical extension of existing laws related to special districts, and it gave Disney rights to operate virtually its own government, with its own police and fire departments, utilities, building codes, zoning, environmental control, and taxing. Nothing so thorough had ever been proposed in Florida. Support for the Disney project seemed strong, but in very little time, two unanticipated challenges arose. And Bob Foster described the events in his memoirs. Things were progressing in good order. Questions were answered. Explanations accepted. Amendments were proposed and worked out. Then a curious thing happened. Everything stopped. Walking through the halls of the Capitol building, it was as though people would say when introduced, Disney who? Roy's instructions to Foster were firm. Tell them if we don't get that legislation, we're not coming. 
Foster learned the Florida Telephone Company and the Florida Power Company had shared their concerns with state legislators about how Disney's establishing its own telephone and power services might affect their interests. So after Foster met with the telephone company's lobbyist and the power company's attorneys, the concerns were resolved and the legislative process restarted just as quickly as it had stopped. So Disney had received the message loud and clear. Even Disney and its massive Florida project were subject to the Florida political machine and its interests. So another challenge arose when the Orange County Commission filed a set of five objections to the legislation shortly after it was introduced. The issues included requiring the new cities to pay expenses if prisoners were held in the county jail and a proposal to prohibit the improvement district from building or operating hotels or motels, which would have been a serious impediment to the project since it included on-site guest lodging. So solutions to all issues were negotiated and the legislation progressed. Within days of its introduction, the Florida House passed the legislation 109 to 1 with little debate. When Senator Elrod presented the legislative package to the Senate, it was passed without debate. On May 5, 1967, the legislation was forwarded to Governor Kirk for his signature, and a week later, the governor hosted a ceremony in the garden of the governor's mansion, where he signed the legislation. In attendance were Florida's business and political leaders, Roy Disney and other Disney executives, and Kirk's youngest daughter, who, who pretty much represented the youth yeah. of America who would be enjoying the new Disney park. Yeah. So Governor Kirk wanted to make sure the importance of this event was noted. So Kirk proclaimed the signing of that this bill ranked in historical significance with the discovery of Florida by Ponce de Leon. So the official proclamation read, when some future generation studies the history of Florida, three events may well stand out above all others the discovery of Florida by Ponce de Leon, the magic moment when Henry Flagler brought the railroad to Palm Beach and opened South Florida for development, and the equally magic moment when Walt and Roy Disney decided to make Florida their second home. Well, I mean... So, could you agree with that? Well, that's what I was going to say. Growing, Not growing up in Florida, um, but living here now... Uh, you know, obviously Ponce de Leon, that's something you learn no matter where you went to school, at least in America, at least where I came right. from. That's, that was natural. Um, is a, it's a common sense. And as a Disney fan, obviously Walt and Roy making Florida their, their second home is a big deal, but, uh, I think he kind of missed the mark a little bit on Henry Flagler and for any native Floridians, I apologize if I'm wrong by that, but, you know, I think, uh, with, with how far Kennedy Space Center has come uh, in the years. I think uh, some of the launches that came out of there might actually go down in history a bit more before uh, opening up South Florida to the rest of the world because, uh, you know, we could 
I don't want to speak for all Floridians. I'll speak for myself, but we could take or leave Miami. We don't really need it that bad. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, but this was 1967, so we hadn't landed on the moon yet. That's a good point. Although yeah. you would think that, yeah, um, yeah, you would think the Kennedy Space Center would still rank up there. But you know, Henry Flickler, he was I when I was coming up to this to my study, which is our studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, out here in the in the great west um he was a jeopardy question because carol was listening to jeopardy oh really and i said hey we're going to be talking about henry tonight oh that's funny yeah so he's still he's still out there huh (laughs) so before signing the bills the governor looked puzzled and said roy i have studied your legislation i've read it carefully studied it and restudied it there's one serious omission, and I can't understand it. And Roy Disney was very serious and was confused and asked, What's that, Governor? And Governor Kirk replied, There's no provision in the kingdom for the crown. (laughs) (laughs) So Governor Kirk signed the bills with a series of ceremonial pens engraved on their base with the words, Signing of Disney World Legislation, Claude R. Kirk Jr. Gov, May 12, 1967. Less than an hour after the signing, the State Road Board approved the reallocation of $5 million in highway funds over five years to the Disney Project area. This had been orchestrated by the governor and his team following a meeting with Roy Disney at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel in California, where Roy Disney had discussed the company's needs to complete the project. The board also adopted a new funding formula for future road projects that Disney could beneficially use for later highway improvements. So Disney's legislative package included bills that created two new municipalities, an improvement district, and revisions to Florida's intellectual property laws. Although Walt Disney's Productions was making some progress on the Florida project politically, (coughs) there was frustration on a lack of progress made in Glendale, California. So according to Marty Sklar, in the year after Walt died, Many people were extremely frustrated because we had already started on Disney World and were well into it. We didn't make any progress for a year. What the decision makers didn't realize was that there were talented people at WED who could carry on projects for Disney World particularly. Since they had no direct insight into what went on here or even who the people were, there was this big gap that Dick Irvine, chief executive of WED, and others had to fill. They had to be convinced that this was still a viable organization that could do this kind of project. Jack Lindquist agrees with Marty Scalar of the time he said, This process slowed down following the initial shock of Walt's passing. Nothing happened because nobody would pick up the gauntlet and move forward. From December 15th, for almost a year, there was doubt whether there would be a project. 
they went forward and secured the legislation and some of the legal work was done, but nothing as far as design and what the project would be. And part of this situation had been due to the void now in Roy's life following the loss of his brother and business partner of 43 years. From the very beginning, Walt had provided the creative direction and motivation for the company, often leading it into unexplored territory. Roy had tempered Walt's force, challenging Walt to prove his visions practical, then supplying the means to accomplish them. Roy was now forced to make both creative and financial decisions. So as Roy considered how the company would finance the Florida project, more companies offered proposals for mergers and acquisitions. Litton Industries, Gulf and Western, and other conglomerates expressed interest in merging with Walt Disney Productions and providing financial help for Disney World. Although he and Walt had rejected General Electric's proposal, Walt gave consideration to an offer from Westinghouse Electric. So Jonathan Bell Lovelace, a Los Angeles lawyer long associated with the Disneys, mailed a letter in August 1967 so confidential that it was sent to Roy's home rather than his office. And in the letter he wrote, I think you might be far happier and live much longer if you were to make a partnership move now when you could be assured of continuing and expanding opportunities for the loyal and able men in the Disney organization and the orderly development of Disney World as you visualize it. So Lovelace acknowledged that Roy had been besieged by suitors, many of them pure opportunists, after Walt's death. Westinghouse was not one of those conglomerates, he said, but a company involved in the entertainment field. Westinghouse had been sponsors of the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904 and the New York World's Fair of 1939 and 1964, and was the founder of Cinema Center Films. The future status of key Disney executives would be assured you would in effect be replacing your present stockholders with a single new stockholder. However, Roy remembered how he and Walt had been double-crossed by Pat Powers and Charles Mintz early in their careers and decided he would not share ownership of the company with anyone. But that still left Roy with the problem of how to finance Disney World. Nolan Brown, an attorney and financial expert, provided Roy with the solution. Convertible debentures. The idea was to sell bonds, which could then be converted into stock when the stock rose to a certain price. With the passage of the large legislative package in the spring of 1967, work on the Disney project began and it began in earnest on the site and would recommence in the headquarters of WED Enterprises in Glendale, California. Oh, wow. It's just... I I can't even imagine the stress that was on Roy Disney's shoulders throughout all of this. Um, Granted, you know all these little details had to play in, but 
there was so much riding on him. I, thank goodness that he was a lot of the money side that he was, because uh, whenever it got to this point, there was just so much that he needed to do. And right, and I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, what, and it really, you know, really makes you realize what a financial genius Roy was, because you know, we, we, we all talk about how Walt was a genius. I mean, Roy. If you remember, didn't even go, didn't go to college. You know, after high school, he went into banking, and it just shows the intelligence of this man. Oh, absolutely! Through all of these decades of the depression and the war, and this the huge expansion of the '60s, and now funding what would become the largest civil engineering project in the history of the United States. That, that he figured it all out. Yeah. So so he was a genius in his own right. Uh, yeah, um, uh, 100%. It's, it's just a new appreciation for Roy is coming week after week after week, I'm sure. Yeah, and, um, and, and the man was 74 years old. <laughs> you know, but uh, everyone's usually kicking at 74, right? Oh, I know. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm hoping I I have half my faculties when I'm 74, and look what Roy was doing. I can't imagine that I'll still be doing this at 74, but at the same time, let's hope that I am. Yeah, really. So so next week in Episode 8, which is titled Up the Creek, um, Craig and I are going to explain the importance of the Reedy Creek Improvement District to Walt Disney Productions' ability to build Project Florida as envisioned by Walt. And also, we're going to look at the political hurdles that the company still had to conquer as they began the construction of Disney World. So, many books, films, and articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including Project Future, the inside story behind the creation of Disney World by Chad Denver Emerson, Building a Company, Roy O. Disney, The Creation of an Entertainment Empire by Bob Thomas. Since the World Began, Walt Disney World, The First 25 Years by Jeff Curdy. So, and I want to thank everyone for bearing with me and your patience through this episode. I, I'm sure I'll have my voice back by next week. <laughs> it was still an intriguing story, despite the fact that you have been losing your voice more and more as it's gone along. <laughs> oh. Well, um, by the way, well, thank you. So, Craig, until our next episode, um, where can our listeners hear your golden vocal tones, which sound great? Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I try. But, uh, <laughs> of course, you can hear me every week on the Dis Unplugged Disney World edition. Uh, you can hear me as I host the Universal edition. Uh, you can hear me as I produce the, the trip, uh, part of the Dis Unplugged podcast network. Uh, you can hear me on Connecting with Walt. If you go back onto the archives of the Disneyland edition, you can hear me on, like, one episode from 2013. Um, I'm sure you can find me on YouTube somewhere where I'm talking at some point in time if you really just can't get enough of my voice uh, th- at this point. But, uh, no, I'm, I'm all over the place. And then mm-hmm. uh, I know I plugged it before. I'm going to plug it again. But uh, the Dreams Unlimited Travel show, uh, as much as I'm there to work the technical side and really bring uh, 
uh, John Magi and Kevin Close's vision to life, I'm actually going to be discussing my uh, my recent backstage magic trip on an upcoming episode for February, and I'm oh that'll be great. yeah it's you know it's it's going to be focused not so much on what you actually see on that trip because we like to try to keep it uh, is uh, is secretive as possible because of some of the things that we actually get to see but um you know so many amazing things happen on it. i know i've touched on a couple of those and left with a bunch of uh a bunch of friends that i will have for for hopefully forever but um no i'm i'm very excited so also look forward to that and that's i think that's everything and maybe see me in the parks right yeah, hope so. Now, uh, and I'm curious. I don't know if I don't know if um, you have the Universal show completely planned out for this week, but you know, as of on the day that we're recording this, we've heard the sad news of Alan Rickman, Rickman's passing, much younger than he should have. Yeah. Who, of course, was Professor Snape in the Harry Potter films. Are you going to talk at all about him since we have the Wizarding World of Harry Potter? At Universal and Diagon. Yeah, we actually, uh, so just to get this all out of the air, this is obviously uh, being released on Friday the 15th. So we recorded our Universal edition today on the 14th. And, uh, oh, we, that's right. We did talk about uh, Alan Rickman for a while and plugged it in. Um, just just to briefly recap for those that will listen to this, but not that, um, Alan Rickman hasn't really had a big impact on everything that's happened in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in uh, Universal Orlando and obviously now with uh, Universal Studios Hollywood but at the same time uh, inside our Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey and I'm sure it'll be the same for yours once it opens up uh, they do have two doors that honor uh, Severus Snape one with the potions classroom and the other uh, Snape's actual office door and you know, it, it's not... Obviously, it would have been great for him to have a bigger part in the attraction in general and everything that went along with it. But still having those those little pieces, it it, it means a lot. And it, it, he was a hard loss, not just for the Harry Potter uh, films, but for, for everything he's done. Uh, the fact that that man started acting like... I believe in films at the age of 41 and made the career that he did after that. It's just, it's insane. And the, the amount of people he impacted, especially through Harry Potter is, uh, is just completely mind blowing. And hopefully whenever your Harry Potter and the forbidden journey in Hogwarts castle opens up in, in April. Wow. That's coming up really yes, quick. Um, it is. <laughs> hopefully whenever it opens up, you guys will also receive uh, Severus Snape's door in the, the potions classroom. So that way it's just one little so. piece of him that's still there. <clears throat> well, thank you. And then you can find me every Sunday night on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Disneyland Edition with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulata willie and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park, that started it all, and all Southern California theme parks, and the Walt Disney Family Museum. So listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time, and you can download our two weekly shows from iTunes on Monday. Also, Mary Jo has discovered Periscope, 
So you want to, um, <clears throat> you know, watch out for her because she has been periscoping like a mad woman. That's awesome. From the parks. Yeah. So um, just to add a little plug on to that, too. So uh, I'll make sure to have a link to at least her or her uh, Twitter profile. So that way you'll be able to get notifications uh, through Periscope whenever she's tweeting. Great. As well as Thank yours you. and everyone else's, hopefully. Well, I've downloaded Periscope, so we'll see what, what I can do with it. Yeah. So, but if you if you watch, well, it's probably gone by now because it only stays a couple of days, right? Yeah. She was she was at the Disneyland watching the candy makers, and narrating it. But you can hear my granddaughter in the background talking to Mary Jo. Oh. So if you're watching that or listening to it, you would have heard mm. her. So, I missed that one. Yeah. So if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes. And I think, Craig, you already mentioned that our listeners can find these shows at... They can find them uh, at disunplugged.com. Yeah, as my voice keeps out. (laughs) Well, that's a perfect time. (laughs) um, And you can um, send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook is Michael Bowling. And on Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That was that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Thank you. Thank you.